where we had the privilege of going down and, and working alongside uh, part of your extended missionary family, uh, Clyde and, and Becky Porter, and uh, they talked so highly of the support, even though the Wayside wasn't their sending church, it had become alongside and been an enormous uh, boost in ministry, and they talked so much with great affection about Wayside, and then meeting Steve and then later Roger at some of the free church gatherings, uh, I knew that God was doing great things through this church and through this group of believers, so thank you for the privilege of joining with you and allowing me to share something out of my own heart and life and thank you for the number of you who've uh, spoken of your concern and prayer and ongoing concern for my daughter and our family. Um, that means more than I can say, and uh, I'm sorry if that's been too heavy an issue uh, on my life this week, but it's where I'm coming from, and that's all I can kind of talk out of. But I want to shift a little bit this morning in terms of our kind of emphasis and thinking uh, in, in terms of being a man of influence. Uh, you may not recognize immediately the name of Mike Rowe, um, but then again, you may. You would see his face. He's on um, truck commercials, uh, advertisements on television. He's on um, jeans commercials. I can't remember which brand. But if you ever turn to the Discovery Channel, you'll know his voice. He's the kind of narrator for Deadliest Catch and Shark Week and those kind of programs if you ever watch any of them. But what I remember him for, I didn't watch it often, but I did watch it enough to be fascinated when I got it, was a program called Dirty Jobs. And uh, he would take on a dirty job and uh, embrace it and get into it. Um, you know, different things like a sewer inspector or um, pig farmer, or one of my personal favorites was shark suit tester, um, whether this suit was going to repel sharks or be able to attack and diving into a bunch of sharks and uh, seeing whether the invention worked or not. And uh, maggot farmer, that was another goodie. Uh, there was something about that that did my soul good when things were tough at church. And I think, well, at least I'm not a maggot farmer. Uh, um, at least I'm not a sewer inspector. And it, it brought life into balance in a particular way. It's kind of ironic because his first job was as an opera singer. And I can't think of any things much more distant from sewer inspector than opera singer. And he has a kind of interesting course of life. He said he got his uh, kind of impetus from watching his grandfather, who was his hero that every day he was a, an electrician, but a jack of all trades in his community. Every morning he went out to work clean, every night he came back dirty. And yet he was a man he respected enormously, and part of his concern, he's spoken before Congress on the need for America to get more skilled laborers, to value dirty jobs and people who do dirty jobs. It's a, a fascinating thing, but um, the issue of work is a significant one. And most of us are not at that end. I know in a group like this, you uh, represent such a range of abilities and gifts, and I've talked and talked to you and tasks that you're involved in, from those of you who are in professions, to those of you who are in executive positions, to those of you who are in military, to those of you who are in more what are called working jobs, whatever, uh, where it's more hands-on and, and using your hands in practical ways. Um, one of the things that becomes important as we talk about being men of influence is to think about our work lives. And uh, often in times like this, uh, and, and on one level I feel, eh, we haven't talked about directly family and, and being a husband and being a father. 
And, uh, and nothing is more critical. There's no more important role for a man in life than what he does in his family. And it's never been more important than in our culture right now, when marriage is disintegrating, for men to step up to the plate and to be the husbands God calls them to be. And in a family, when an incredible number of children are being born into families, they will never live with their birth father. And they will, many of them, never even know their birth father. When uh, those kind of marriages or relationships, children are born uh, into that, and it's pushing in some communities 70%, and some parts of our community 50 and so percent, um, to be a father is, there's no higher calling that God gives a man in the time in which we live. But I want to think this morning about that other great area of our life where we spend a huge amount of our time. Because two things are true. Our work matters to God. And the other side is God matters to our work. And for a Christian to know those two things is utterly crucial. My work matters to God. And that applies to every kind of work. All too often in Christian contexts, we talk about uh, a call to ministry and call to pastoral ministry, call to missionary work. And those are important calls. But it is just as important that you know that God has called you to the area of work that you have. And that work matters to God. And God matters to your work. And pushing the influence of the kingdom into the place of work is significant. So I want to think about that a little bit with you this morning. We we have all kinds of different uh, challenges here. Some of us uh, love our work too much. Talk about loving work. I mean, some of us, our greatest challenge in life is we so love our work and our significance is so bound up with that that we, uh, we push everything else into another place in life. Others of us are in the pressure cooker of modern culture. I don't know whether you've been watching recently, but uh, the different uh, large banks are just announcing they're changing things for their uh, entry-level guys coming in out of uh, some of the top schools in the country, the business schools and the analyst schools, and they're now insisting that they take one day off a week or some of them are not quite getting there, they're saying one weekend a month because some of these guys on Wall Street are being pushed into jobs and uh, you remember the story of the guy in London who um, just, just died as, a, as an intern because he was putting in such long weeks, 110 hour weeks, and that's become the norm. Although I love the way in which one bank said it, you know, we're gonna require you to take Saturday off. I was struck by that, but uh, that it was Saturday, we're going to require you to take Saturday off every week, but you'll be expected to answer the email every time you get emailed. You think, okay, that's giving with one hand and taking back with the other. But that's a challenge, and many of you find yourself in very high-demand jobs where expectations are placed on you, and how do I balance all of that? And then there's others for whom just work is a, an ugly necessity. I have to do it because I've got to support and feed my family. So how does God fit into all of this? Well, I'm going to use Colossians as a, as a jumping off spot. So if you take the book of Colossians and turn to chapter 3, just a few verses, and we'll try to use that and to bridge into a larger uh, picture. But 
it is important as we come to a passage like this that we see it in its larger context. Colossians is a marvelous book written to a church Paul had never visited. Uh, he had spent three years in Ephesus. This is all in what we know today as Turkey. And one of the men who had come to faith in Ephesus was a man named Epaphras. And Epaphras had gone to his, back to his home, it's in the Lycus Valley, about uh, 80 miles east of Ephesus. And in the Lycus Valley, there were three cities, Colossae, his hometown, which was the smallest of the three, um, Hierapolis, and Laodicea. And he had been used by God to plant churches in each of those three places. And now he's back with Paul. Paul is in prison in Rome as a follower of Christ. He's waiting trial before Nero. Uh, it's his first imprisonment. And he's heard through Epaphras of problems in the church in Colossae. So we don't have time to go into all of that, but I just want to frame this because it's really important biblically that we understand uh, how scripture works because we can come to a passage like this and misuse it if we're not careful. His great theme is Jesus Christ is supreme and sufficient. Jesus Christ is supreme. He reaches the high point of that in chapter 1 verse 15 when he says he is the image of the invisible God the first over all creation. For in him, all things were created, whether in heaven and earth, visible or invisible, thrones, dominions, principalities, and powers. All things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head over his body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Uh, so that in everything he might have first place. In him all fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And God is working to reconcile all things to himself. Jesus is supreme. And then he's saying to these Colossians, and Jesus is sufficient. Chapter 2, marvelous verse that says, in him dwells all the fullness of the divine nature in bodily form, and you are filled full in him. So Christ is supreme and he's sufficient. He's all you need, not only for salvation, but for life. And God has made you new people in Christ. So then we get to chapter three. But here's the principle, and I, and I, I want to just sort of take the moment to emphasize this. And, and it will help you understand a huge amount about the Christian life. Let me put it in grammatical terms. We have sentences that state a fact. Um, I am a Canadian. You are an American. That's called an indicative. It just states a fact. We are at camp. And then there are commands, imperatives, that require us to do something. Now, the, the principle is this. In Scripture, in our understanding of the Christian life, the indicative always precedes the imperative. Who we are determines what we should do. It isn't the other way around. What we should do determines who we are. I guess some of you are in the military, and that was drummed into you. You're in the army now. Therefore, behave like this. You don't behave like this to get in the army. You're to behave like this because you're in the army. Because you're wearing the uniform of the country. You're a Marine. 
shape up, live like a Marine. Now, that's the basis ultimately of the Christian life. It is because of God's grace that God's commands come to us. So you'll notice chapter three begins with this. If you then have been risen with Christ, but the way that's put is saying, since you've been risen with Christ, that's who you are. You're a new man in Christ. And then he's gonna talk about how that lives itself out. If you're a new man in Christ, dress the part. So without going into all of chapter three, you'll notice that he uses the imagery of clothing. In verse nine, he says, don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices. You've put on the new self. You've already got that new identity in Christ. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate heart. And he goes on to talk about all of these things. And in verse 17 comes to the part just before we're going to read. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now the reason I say that is because whether it's in our, because now he's going to talk about husbands and wives and he's going to talk about fathers and children. It doesn't come to us a command of, hey, husband, this is how you live. Your priority relationship is your relationship to your wife. No, it's because your priority relationship is your relationship to Christ. That's how you're to relate to your wife. That's how you relate to your children. That's how you're to relate in your work life and in your work experience. And so the command doesn't come, do this on your own. It's realize who you are in Christ, that he's supreme and he's sufficient to enable you to do those things. Be God's man and realize you're God's man first of all. Okay, in the light of all of that, let's read, and we're jumping into these commands that are given about how this works itself out in practical ways in verse 22. Slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, Fearing the Lord, meaning the Lord Jesus. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he's done and there's no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Now, in another context, in another place, we'd have to spend some time unpacking about, the, about slaves and, uh, and how that fits and how we think through all of that and, and relate that. There's obviously a huge cultural difference. It is estimated that in the Roman Empire, one-third of the population were slaves. Uh, 60 million is one guess about it. It wasn't the kind of American uh, slavery that was chattel slavery. Most of the slavery was either economic, you got in trouble, they didn't have bankruptcy, so you went into economic slavery, or it was warfare. You were, you were captured, you were brought back. Uh, slaves were on, uh, in all kinds of different levels in terms of how they lived out their life experience. Some of them were of huge influence. Um, Nero's tutor was a slave, and he was one of his major advisors because he was a, a brilliant man. Others of them were doing the kind of jobs you expect of slaves. It's a very, very cultural difference. The, 
there's no opportunity for Christians to overturn the institution of slavery. They're a tiny minority. And so what happens within the New Testament is slavery is accepted as a given within which people have to live, but it's undermined. And as Paul comes with this letter to the Colossians, there's another letter that he's sending with Tychicus, who's the man who's bringing the letter, and that's to Philemon. And if we had time, we could look at the book of Philemon in which he is returning to him a runaway slave named Onesimus who's become a brother in Christ. And uh, as you read through that, Onesimus is saying, or pardon me, Paul says about Onesimus, uh, don't receive him as a slave. Receive him as he is a brother in Christ. And, um, you know, by the way, if he owes you anything, put that on my account. I should remind you, you owe your eternal salvation to me, but (laughs) put it on my tab anyway. And he is putting... Uh, um, Philemon on Mark that this is now a brother in Christ who needs to be treated as a brother in Christ. He's faithful and that's the way he'll be described in Colossians. So what that did was undermine the institution of slavery from within when they couldn't do anything politically without, without that. But anyway, all of that's in the background. That's not our major point. So we're going to do this kind of cultural slip. What he's saying to slaves is ultimately something about work. And I want you to notice four things Uh, that are bound up in this passage. He doesn't say it this way, but it's helpful for us to think of it in this way. First of all, work. He wants these slaves to understand, and let's just say those of us who are in a position of working. Work has a God-given dignity. You notice how careful he is, and we're going to come back to this in another form in just a minute, but to emphasize to slaves... Oh, I didn't say this about slaves. The Greeks and the Romans despised manual work. A free man had other people to do manual work for him. And even Aristotle, a great philosopher, referred to slaves as living tools. Uh, They had no personal value uh, other than whatever the master designed them to have. But as Paul writes to slaves, he carefully focuses them on the Lord and says, do what you do. Notice these phrases in verse 22. Fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you are receiving the inheritance. Verse, at the end of verse 24, this great statement, and it's either some translations will put it as a command, others will put it as a, as a statement. You are serving the Lord Christ. Now, what he is trying to say is work has a God-given dignity. It was one of the great issues of the Reformation when uh, Martin Luther and Zwingli, Ulrich Zwingli in Switzerland and John Calvin and the others rediscovered the reality of the Word of God and uh, we began to get it clear that all work has dignity before God. Because work, first of all, is the creation of God. Sometimes we totally misread the Bible and we think that we work because Adam sinned and fell into sin, but that's simply not true. You remember the um, creation command that's given in Genesis chapter 1. 
They are to have dominion, but they are to rule and subdue the earth. And then really strikingly in Genesis chapter two, I wonder if you've ever noticed this expression. This is of the creation that God had said was very good. And it said in verse five, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. One of the reasons that the Garden of Eden didn't exist was because there was no man in God's creation order to work the ground. God made the world intentionally incomplete without human beings. And then, a little bit later, he does uh, create the garden. And it says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So we are made to be working people. And when the Bible speaks of the future, when Christ rules on earth during the millennial kingdom, it talks about working. And when it takes that same word, uh, idea, and takes the new heavens and the new earth in heaven, talks about his people serving him. One of the interesting things that uh, it occurs in the Hebrew language is the word for work, avad, and the word for worship are the same word. And that's God's intention. Now, one of the results of the fall was not that work takes place, but thorns and thistles make the work harder. In other words, what sin brought in was frustration, not work. And that's a very critical understanding. We are made to be working people. That's part of the image of God. The second thing that is spoken of in the Old Testament is that work is a gift of God. The writer of Ecclesiastes, for all of the uh, unusualness of the book of Ecclesiastes, repeats this theme several times. Here's chapter two. There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil, his work. This I saw is from the hand of God. Or in chapter three. So I saw there's nothing better than the man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Or chapter five. Behold, I've seen to be good and fitting, how, what I, pardon me, what I have seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in all the work with which one works under the sun the few days of his life that God has given to him for his lot. Everyone to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power to enjoy them and to accept his lot and rejoice in him, this is the gift of God. So even in the fall, even in its brokenness, work is the gift of God. Maybe the supreme thing is, is that Jesus spent more of his life as a worker than he did as a Messiah. In Mark chapter six, verse three, it says, um, when, they, when they hear Jesus in Nazareth, they ask the question, isn't this Jesus the carpenter? Other, Luke, I think, says, isn't this the carpenter's son, Joseph's son? It says the carpenter. Actually, the word is builder. Um, that's only important because there wasn't, carpentry work wasn't the big thing in Israel. Most of the stuff is done out of stone. And if you're ever in Israel, you'll understand that really quickly. You have trouble finding wood. You don't have trouble finding stone. It is abundant everywhere. But listen, think about that. Jesus spent his life as a builder. 
Do you think he ever had to haggle with somebody over the price they wanted to charge him for materials? Jesus was sinless, but the guys he was dealing with wasn't. Do you ever think he had a dissatisfied customer who, um, even though he'd done exactly what he was supposed to do, wasn't happy with what he was Do you ever think he had people who welched on paying? Jesus was a marketplace person. He lived in the marketplace dealing with sinful people. As a matter of fact, most of, us, most of the thought is that um, he was close enough to a major kind of rebuild of a city named Sepphoris that was uh, uh, about a mile, uh, pardon me, an hour's walk from Nazareth. Nazareth was a tiny little village and uh, there was this major building and Jesus almost certainly, it's interesting to walk through the ruins of that because they come from the first century and think, I wonder which of these buildings Jesus worked on. But it's critical that we understand Jesus lived in that world. So did the Apostle Paul. Because if the Greeks looked down on uh, working with your hands, in the biblical, uh, in the rabbinic sense of the Jewish context, you were not allowed to be a rabbi unless you learned to work with your hands. So Paul was a leather worker. And he often would go into a place and he would work and he says to the Thessalonians, you knew I was within you working night and day so not to be a burden to any of you. I I was a marketplace person. Now, we usually think of Paul as someone with whom pastors can identify and with missionaries can identify. He certainly was that. But I want you to rethink that a little bit and understand Jesus knows what it's like to try and satisfy an unreasonable customer or an unreasonable boss in that particular situation. And how to, I don't know whether he had to make payroll or not. But when I began to see that, it just opened up a whole new understanding of Jesus the man to me and where he spent it and where he spent his life. Your work matters to God because God himself is a worker. And Jesus worked. And your work has a God-given dignity. And you are, here's the second thing. If our work has a God-given dignity, it has a God-centered focus. So as we work, well, notice what is said in Colossians. He's talking to slaves. Their, Their work has no social status in terms of the larger world. But he says, work as somebody who fears the Lord, whatever you do, do heartily as for the Lord, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the, the reward, you are serving the Lord Christ. In Colossians, pardon me, in Ephesians, which was written at the same time, he says to slaves, you are to work as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Your work is the will of God. And you are doing the will of God when you are working. I uh, have been in pastoral ministry for a long time, but during my college years I, and in my seminary years, I worked largely in, in construction jobs as a laborer. 
And it was, uh, I, you know, you have different foremen, they come in and they just, they just love the thought that they hadn't finished high school and here's this guy who's now in his 20th year of education somewhere after, you know, university and now graduate school and doing this and they would come to me and inevitably, I can remember uh, one of them who, and I worked for him several years, he'd say, Enrig, we pay you from the neck down. Don't think, just do what I tell you to do. <laughs> And nothing was more of an incentive to go back to school and train than to, than to do that. And, and there was another summer that I spent, and uh, it was no fun, but it was in a, it was in a paper factory on the, end of a, on the end of a conveyor belt, you know, trying to keep up with a machine and watching others try to subvert the machine so that they could... You know that wonderful I Love Lucy sketch with the chocolates and uh, you know, that... Anyway, I, I can understand a little bit of what that feels like, unloading boxcars. But I was doing the will of God when I was doing that as thoroughly as I was when I was standing preaching on Sunday in some local church. You are doing the will of God where God has placed you. And you are serving the Lord Christ. I know you're serving whatever your boss is and you're serving your customers. But your work is one of the ways in which God uses to meet the needs of people. And one of the ways that God blesses people. Martin Luther, in his inimitable way, said, uh, God milks the cow through you. He wrote, and this is, I think, worth hearing if I can find it. Well, it was worth hearing, but I, <laughs> where could it have disappeared to? Well, what he says, in effect, is this. God blesses the maid when she cleans the floor. Not because she sings hymns when she's doing it, but because God loves clean floors. God messes, blesses the shoemaker when he makes shoes, not because he attaches crosses to it, but because God loves good craftsmanship. God takes delight when uh, you do a job and you do it well. I had a car that I bought because my uh, son-in-law had some financial challenges and it was going to be repossessed, so I ended up with his car to save him this. It was a BMW, which sounds a whole lot better than it was. <laughs> and I was parked. It had a very low... Um, bumper and I pulled up too far and I pulled back and the bumper came off. Um, so there I, or the bumper cover, um, as somebody informed me it should be called. So I went and I had it repaired. Somebody had sent me to somebody and I had it repaired. And um, it was a year and a half later that I, it happened again. And um, I, this time I took it into a proper repair shop. I decided to get it done properly. And the guy came out and said, I can't believe what, uh, do you know how this was held together? The guy had put it together with wood screws to, to tie it on. And all I could thought of, well, I'd gone to him because the price was cheap, but everything else was cheap as well. Now, the point I make is, I, I, I I'm not inclined to body work on cars. I don't know it. And I didn't crawl under to see what he was doing. I trusted him. And I couldn't trust him. He, um, he wasn't trustworthy. And 
the issue is a Christian recognizes that I'm serving the Lord Christ. So I can't cut corners. I've got to do it in a way that honors him. There's this marvelous phrase in in, um, Titus chapter 2, and it's again talking about slaves. Um, And um, because it's one of those verses that we can read by, let me just read it to you. It says, Slaves are to be submissive to their own master in everything. They're to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Slaves, you can adorn the gospel. Now, what does it mean to adorn something? Our wives are into that. Adorning doesn't mean you theoretically put in what's not there. It means that you present what's there in its most favorable light. And Paul is saying, slaves, you can adorn the gospel of our Lord Jesus. I remember um, Haddon Robinson, who was one of my teachers, telling the story of um, a newspaper in, in uh, Canada, in Toronto. And uh, they were testing out, I don't know why they got into cars, but um, they were testing out service stations. They would pull into a uh, Um, a service station, and they would get an estimate on what needed to be. They'd rigged a couple of things, and it related to, uh, I I think at that point, it was all just distributor cap, um, and loosening one of the the, uh, distributor cap wires to to everything. And uh, then they went into about 10 different, it was a newspaper, pardon me, it was a television thing. They went in, and they had a hidden camera, and they got estimates from all of them, and the estimates related to total engine reworks, to all of these things, except one, a guy named Cecil Beaton. And Cecil Beaton uh, came in and he looked at it and he spotted what it was and he uh, reconnected the distributor cap and he said, you're, you're good to go. <laughs> and the newspaper reports that, what do you mean we're good to go? We, we've had estimates that it's gonna take you know, a couple of thousand dollars to redo the engine. He said, no, your problem was that you had a loose distributor cap. Well, what do we owe you? I couldn't charge you for that. All that it just needed to be reattached. He said, well, you, do, you could have charged us anything. Why did you do that? He said, well, uh, I'm a Christian, and I serve Christ. I couldn't do something that wasn't dishonest like that. And then Haddon Robinson said, that man had more influence on that one statement than all of the sermons preached in Toronto that weekend for the cause of Christ. He adorned the gospel. Now, we're, we're not likely to have that opportunity, but our work has a God-centered focus. So out of that comes this, um, our, our work also is to have a God-intended work style. There's all kinds that could be said. Let's just look quickly at, um, at what's said in Colossians. Um, it's said in ways that require some translation, and and, uh, obviously these are complex and they need nuancing. But let me just notice the first thing, slaves, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Well, at least in part we could say, and we're not under slavery, we're not in those kind of conditions, but it does mean that we work with respect for those with whom we're working, that we show proper respect. When he says obey in everything, clearly, Christian obeys God rather than man, and that doesn't mean to do what 
it's unethical and sometimes in business that's a huge challenge when you're getting pressures from above to get this contract but nevertheless as much as it's possible within the limits of being a Christ follower we're to live under the authority that God has placed over us secondly we're to live or work with diligence not by way of eye service as men pleasers I think the idea of eye service is don't just work when the boss is watching um, to please men. Now, obviously, you want to please your employer. I, I don't think Paul is saying that at all. But he's saying don't, don't just work when he's watching. Don't be guided just by what's externally required. And then the next, do it with sincerity of heart. And that's a word, sincerity, that means singleness of heart. Um, and singleness in contrast to duplicity. In other words, integrity. Do, do it with integrity. Gets back to my wood screws holding my bumper cover on. Um, I, I'm not a great fan, forgive me here if you are, of Christian yellow pages. Because what I love to do is give my brothers in Christ work. But I'm not willing to have them do a job just because they're Christians. I want to know, first of all, whether they're competent. I'd rather go to a competent non-Christian than an incompetent Christian. And secondly, I want them to have character. And unfortunately, not all of those who name the name of Christ are consistent. And those two issues of competence and character become critical. You're doing your work with integrity. Um, now, I, 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 I most of the time I end up going to Brothers in Christ who I get a reference from, but I check their references if I can because I want to know that somebody's working with integrity. Um, that's true in Christian ministry as well um, in terms of when I'm looking for a reference for somebody and, and trying to get that. I mean, and the best time to fire somebody is before you hire them. And um, you, you want to find, is this a person of integrity? And, and you learn quickly, and I, I learned rather quickly in my ministry life that, uh, boy, there was some tremendously gifted people. But I would, character trumps giftedness in some occasions because some of those people who I brought on who were gifted, they didn't have integrity. And they caused me more headaches than somebody who was just a good, solid B-plus person doing the best they could with integrity for the glory of God. And then the other term, that's used here is work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Do it, do it well. <clears throat> Sometimes that's easier to say than others. And, and we all know what it is to fight, but there's other times, there's sometimes when you have to say, I, I, I hate what's going on in this company, I hate what's going on in this workplace, but I'm doing it for the Lord. And I want to put not just my company's name on it, I want to be able to present this to the Lord. So there's a God-given work style. The best place to look for that is in the book of Proverbs. And if we were doing this at greater depth, that's where we go. The, 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 the fourth thing, and then I just want to look at one other thing briefly, but the fourth thing is work has a God-given dignity. Work has a God-centered focus. Work has a God-intended work style. And work has a God-promised reward. I wonder if you've ever understood what Paul says 
in verse 24. Knowing that from the Lord you will receive an inheritance. Now let me translate that in a cultural sense. Slaves didn't get inheritances. Slaves got zip. When they finished work, they finished work. That that was the end of it. That was what it was to be a slave and not a son. Sons got inheritances, not slaves. So here he's saying to slaves who had nothing on that level to look forward to, you're going to get an inheritance. And then he goes on to say, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. Your secular work is going to be an issue at the judgment seat of Christ. It isn't just going to be whether you taught in ABF or in Sunday school or whether you shared the gospel. How you did your work is an issue that matters to God so much that there will be eternal rewards for your work. Have have you ever understood that? I remember when I first thought that, I thought, wow, that, that changes my work place entirely. It's not just how I witnessed and, and um, how I did that. Some of us look at our work as having instrumental value and only instrumental value. What, what I mean by instrumental value is my work gives me a platform through which I can share Christ. That may be true, but your work has intrinsic value. It was one of the things watching Dirty Jobs with Mike with Mike Rowe, that you look at that and thinking, boy, I'm sure glad I don't have to do it. But I'm awfully glad there's somebody inspecting sewers. And, and if you doubt the value of that, go with Rick sometime to a third world country and you'll just see the things we take for granted in our country. Garbage pickup. <laughs> I mean... It's horrible to see the appalling conditions. People who look after, and we grumble about the level of our taxes, and maybe rightly so, but listen, drive on roads like I've driven in. You just go down the border into Mexico, and you're thankful for people who are out doing that hard work. Our work has, is a way of showing love to others. It is loving my neighbor as myself. It's obedience to the great commandment, the second part of it. As I do my work well, it is a gift of God. It isn't just medical people, and and thank God for medical people, we're living with that, and it's easy to see the intrinsic value of their work. But all of our work has intrinsic value, unless, I mean, there are certain kinds of jobs that are utterly sinful, and I don't, we don't need to talk about that. All work isn't God-honoring. The vast majority of work is, and it will receive a reward from the Lord. Now, the final thing he ends with is a a word to employers or masters. And he doesn't say much. Uh, Actually, they fit into all of these other things that are said. But what he does say is significant. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly. With justice, that points you to God because justice is the word righteousness. The Old Testament illustration of righteousness is found in Deuteronomy. I think it's it's either chapter 23 or 25. And it talks about having just scales. Remember the old balance scales with what you put on one side 
and you put the product on the other. And it used to be that they would always talk about butchers. Remember butchers who would, in the balance scales, they'd talk about them weighing their thumb over and over because they had a subtle way of pressing down. I'm not sure whether butchers did it, but that was the watch out for a butcher who's you know, pressing his thumb down on the balance scale. So that balance scale, that's what a just thing is. It, so what you put in the other side to measure it against determines whether it's righteous. And what you put in the other side is the character of God for a Christian. And never just the cultural pattern. Never just what is humanly required. What is a just measure of pay? And then equality, what is fair, what is equal, um, raises other questions. I can't begin to get into this issue, but Christian workers cannot, if they're serving God, just do what the market bears. They always have to bring higher issues into bear on that kind of issue. And that's challenging, and it's difficult. And in our kind of economic thing, we need to remember, because that's the last phrase, you're under a master. If you're an executive, you're in our position. Yeah, you're accountable to your board. You're accountable to, uh, to the marketplace and to your, um, your investors. But you're under the master. And God is going to hold you account, not just to the bottom line, but what is righteous and equitable. I, I can't begin to try and solve that. I don't know what that looks like. There's all kinds of economic debates in our country. I mean, there's something terribly wrong, and we look for the coming of Christ when, if the statistics are any close, 1% of the, of the uh, population of the world owes 56, 46% of all of the wealth. I mean, it's not hard to see the injustice and the inequity of that. How, how do I, as a Christian, though, live within that and try to move it in a more appropriate way? That's for wiser men than me to, uh, to try and work through. But what I want us to think about, and I've taken this time this morning, it's not because I think there's an issue here, but I think all too rarely when we think about being men of influence, do we think about our workplace life? about being kingdom agents. Work, three things again, let me remind you. Work has an intrinsic value. It is created by God to meet human needs and to show love, either directly or indirectly. It has instrumental value. It has instrumental value because it enables me to meet my needs. But more than that, There's this fascinating verse in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29, that says, Let him who stole steal no longer, but let him labor, working with his hands. Do you remember how that verse ends? So that he may have to give to those who are in need. I I love that verse because it says, you know, um, it isn't enough that a thief stops thieving. A thief hasn't come into the kingdom in the way God wants until he's working and giving. And there's a kind of, so one of the reasons I work is so that I can give to those who have need. And and while that, supremely for a Christian, happens through our local church ministries, it also is just the way in which we see life. So work has intrinsic value, it has instrumental value, and your work has eternal value. Because the Lord will reward Well done, good and faithful servant. 
has something to do with what you do 40, 50, 60, and if it's higher than that, maybe you need to do some rethinking um, hours a week. That's an agent in which what Paul said in verse 17 comes through. Whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I sign his name to this? Johann Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach was, of course, the great composer, and he was a Christian. And when he would finish a cantata, he was always known for the last thing he would do was write SDG on the top of it. So if you look at the manuscript of any of his pieces, they have SDG, Sola Deo Gloria, to the glory of God alone. And so what you say about what I did this weekend is nice. But what matters is, is God glorified from what I've done? What your employer says is important at the time of your annual review. But whether you're signing your work SDG is even more important to be a man of influence for the kingdom adorning the gospel. Thank you, Gary, very much. Um, we got some time for our breakout groups. Uh, we need to be back here at 11 o'clock because we're going to have communion together. So um, enjoy that time together. Pray for one another. Um, use this as a great time to just uh, wrap up some of your thoughts and apply what we've been thinking about this morning.